0: In the last, now, 150 years, there have been two major changes to copyright law. The
1: 1909 Copyright Act and the 1976 Copyright Act. This is Mike Maznick, writer and founding editor at TechDirt.com. Almost the
0: entire reason why we have a 1909 Copyright Act is because the music industry at the time, which was the people who produced sheet music for playing on piano or whatever, freaked out that there were player pianos, pianos that you could put a roll of special paper in and it would play the music automatically. And they freaked out because this was piracy It was going to destroy their business entirely. And so the 1909 Act was basically written to try and stop the piracy of music because of player pianos. And then you just go through history and it's all the same thing over and over again. When radio came out, the music industry insisted that that was piracy. When the first gramophone you know, record players came out, oh, that's a tool of piracy. Over and over and over again, everything is piracy. The VCR, right? You know, the famous statement was Jack Valenti of the Motion Picture Association saying that the VCR is to Hollywood what the Boston Strangler is to the woman at home alone. He said that in the 1980s, four years after he said that, whole movie production, VCR movie tapes, made more money for Hollywood than all of their box office stuff. Over and over again, they insist that any new technology, because it can be used in some cases for piracy, must be killed and is bad and destroyed. And they never seem to recognize like, hey, maybe there's an opportunity here. Maybe it's opening up new things. Maybe it's allowing us to distribute it in different ways. Maybe it's allowing us to find new artists in different ways. Maybe it's allowing us to promote, to monetize, to find all these different things in different ways. They just immediately go to the worst possible idea like this can be used in a bad way and therefore it is pure evil and then they just spread that message and so many people buy into it
1: the american dream is always sold as an opportunity to create something out of passion to grow it into a business better your situation move your family to the suburbs and live happily ever after in a house with a white picket fence and that's a beautiful picture but it's a cropped one if you zoom out, you'll see that someone before you made a bigger business, bought a bigger house, and built a bigger fence. And their American dream is to keep you out. Where it's the real. And this is episode 9. Fuck a blog, dog. The morning of November 26th, 2010, was unseasonably warm in New York. Any other year? The founder of OnSmash.com might have gotten outside to enjoy the weather. But this Black Friday, after a night of zero sleep, Hoff was in front of his computer, staring at what would be his five-year-old website. But in its place was a seizure notice from the United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE. The government was fighting piracy with censorship. Just because the NMC called themselves a cartel didn't mean that they really were one. They weren't esco-bloggers. They weren't narcos. This wasn't Medellin. There was nothing that Hoff could do besides wonder how on Smash was considered the enemy after all the free promo he and his team had done on behalf of artists and labels. He thought back to the first days of his site in 2006.
2: I have this very clear memory of true life recording a freestyle for us in a phone booth. That's how long that goes back. I thought it was dope at the, he was rapping like he was almost talking into the phone. And then right when it was done, like he slammed the phone down and kind of walked out and there was the video. And, that was an important part where I realized there are some younger, new artists that are looking at the online and digital space as a way to break their records.
1: At 10.55 that morning, Hoff broke his silence, tweeting, Nothing other than our domain has been quote-unquote seized, and I still have yet to receive any official correspondence as to why this happened. Thank you all for your support. #Hashtag free on Smash. Mike Maznick, who'd been reporting and deciphering technology and government policies for TechDirt since 1997, followed the on Smash case from Jump.
0: In terms of Homeland Security and ICE and how they get involved with this, I don't know. I don't know that anybody knows. It's this bizarre situation where years later, many years later, this is just a few years ago, they had put out a press release about all the copyright infringing websites that they had seized. They said over a million websites they had seized. And it was a really weird press release because it confused trademark, like counterfeiting is a trademark issue and copyright. And they sort of used the two interchangeably, but like they're really, really different laws. And I recognize like if you're not deep in the weeds on this, it doesn't seem to matter much, but it actually does matter when you're like the law enforcement agency in charge of enforcing all of this. And so they were just like, okay, yeah, like, hey, this is cool. This will get us a lot of attention, you know, if we're helping Hollywood and helping musicians, which they thought they were doing, though, was really the labels. You know, they seem to just get wowed by the sort of glitzy lights and, and famous people. And we're like, oh, yeah, like we can protect hip hop or whatever. And so they just jumped in, I think because they thought it would get attention. And they seem to extend what they thought their powers were, which is, you know, to search things at the border and at ports to make sure that there's no counterfeit goods into believing that they could take down things for what they
1: believed was copyright infringement based entirely on the say so of like one dude at the record label. In the face of so many challenges throughout 2010, blogs like On Smash had been on fire. Even with larger websites pushing the amount of content, traditional media clawing back audiences, and labels actively sending cease and desist threats, Hoff had felt things were leveling out. Do you have any C&Ds that you remember specifically getting?
2: Not particularly. I think it was the ones I didn't get that I reflect back on. And I say that meaning before the whole incident with the government came down, there was kind of six months where we didn't get any C and Ds. And my whole rationale through things were the second anyone from a label or an artist camp wanted something down, it was down. Like it was down same day, usually same hour. And, you know, there was always this nod and a wink we had with the labels where it's like, hey, you can start these records early, but once they become commercially viable, or artists would put out a lot of street mixtapes to test out some different records. I believe Rick Ross had the Albert Anastasia mixtape, which had BMF and several other huge songs. So, like, utilizing that as an example, it was all good when we were posting that mixtape when it first dropped. But the second those songs kind of bubbled up, that's when it would be like, hey, sorry, have to send you a cease and desist to take this down. You know, this is a huge record now, please. And, you know, it was always
1: obliged. Steve Carlos, who at his Def Jam Street Promotions job fed the blogs Rick Ross's music and posted that same music on his website, Best of Both Offices, had a unique vantage point.
2: It was real disruptive, but it was like burning Babylon.
3: We came, we built, we destroyed, we disrupted, and then they sent the battalion out to wipe us out. What happened to On Smash is the advanced version of what happened to
1: Cannon and Drama, right? Just three years before, at the direction of the RIAA, government agents raided the studio of DJ Drama and Don Cannon. Like on Smash, Drama and Cannon's business, providing artists outside promotional services in coordination with the major record labels, was ground to a halt. Plain Pat, an A&R who worked closely with Kid Cudi and was a longtime friend of Hoff's. Nah, oh, man. Yeah,
0: that was, um... The when the fans took... On Smash, it was a really fucked up time period in general, I feel like. For me personally, but yeah, that was just like devastating. Um, I felt like it was just so horrible. You know, to see, I guess that was, you know, I guess the, when you talk about drama, it's the same thing with like labels using you for what they need you for, but really not caring. Like at the end of the day, they big business. It's all about the dollar, So it's like,
1: you know, it's just fucked up how they did it. Hoff reached out to drama and canon, knowing they'd been in similar shoes. They were
2: very supportive, especially online and when they were being interviewed because a lot of the media was covering this whole era and they were trying to figure out all the different angles. And there were a lot of artists, many of which their music might have not been as popular on our site as they were, would have hoped, were obviously lashing out. There were a lot of people that we were supportive of feeling like they might have had to cover their asses with whatever respective labels they were signed to that suddenly were dummying up and acting like they never gave us the music and we didn't have a direct relationship.
1: It seemed like everyone had something to say everyone except the government. After the site was seized, the government had 60 days to either bring OnSmash to court or return it. Following the proper processes, Hoff's lawyers filed to have the site given back, but the government ignored them. Their spokespeople denied that any requests had been made. Suing the government can be very expensive, so the lawyers for OnSmash played things more conservatively choosing to check in with requests only as often as they were allowed. 60 days turned into 120, then 180, and on and on. The government, since making their big, showy seizure and initial press conference, had effectively ghosted Hoff.
0: I think ICE and the Justice Department, which had to defend these cases, just realized that they had made a huge
1: mistake and just didn't want to deal with it, and they kind of hid All Hoff wanted to do was correct things, but he wasn't in the wrong. And executives would tell him just that.
2: Everyone from David Benjamin to people at all the major label groups, when I met with them afterwards, always said to me, I wish it wasn't you who got targeted because you always took things down when we asked or whenever there was an issue. You were one of the ones we could count on taking it down or making it right.
1: Hoff, a longtime employee of the labels, going back to the early days of new media at Def Jam, chose not to throw anyone under the bus. Instead, he sat and suffered the hypocrisy quietly.
2: There were many executives concerned about any potential backfall that suddenly wouldn't answer your calls or wanted nothing to do with you or refused to even give some perspective as to, hey, what's going on are the labels upset with us right now, like did something happen? I'd be lying if I said I wasn't feeling a bit burned or jaded, but ultimately, I tried to see comfort in the old adage business never personal. My greatest concern when the site was seized was ultimately was the industry truly looking at me as a pirate and the way I was being positioned in the media and in that lawsuit? What I found particularly interesting is how could I be at the top of your marketing plan? And every release that's coming out, you giving us exclusive content, you buying banners on the website, you giving us tickets, begging us to cover events and all these things at the same time that I'm on the top of your legal team's hit list. I thought that was a little hypocritical, but ultimately I was really concerned because I had always worked in the music industry and I always aspired to work in the music industry. So I thought, initially not only did i lose my sight my well-being would i ever be able to work in it again or would i be quote-unquote blackballed
1: here's plain pat you know the fucked up thing about the on smash it was like i think they gave him 10
0: artists that were a reason why they shut him down and on that list was Cuddy. like mr rager was on the list that was so fucked up to me because it was like man this, this site was like you know part of the breaking of, of cutting like all the early freestyles we would put up there the boss freestyle and, this and that So it was like when i tried to appeal to them they were like oh I don't know. that's you know that's a corporate thing you know so it was like
4: but that was always like kind of public.
1: Artists from DJ Khaled to Jim Jones to Kendrick, Currency, Raekwon, and more tweeted their support of Hoff's work,
5: telling the world, hashtag free on smash. During his last days at Def Jam, the safe bet was that Joe Budden would never make Pump It Up again. Executives didn't lose sleep cutting ties with Joe. Now he could do whatever he wanted, music or otherwise. And just as he predicted, Vlogs gave Joe a stage and an audience. Some of his lyrics and interviews led to beefs, beefs led to fights, fights were captured on camera, and everything was something to click on. The Joe Budden economy had all the exposure, but nothing to show for it. On an early upload from Joe Budden TV, Joe said he was over rap and more interested in real estate, where he could make a steady living.
6: (laughs) Oh, those were hard times back then. During the Blonde era, I was a broke because I didn't know how to get money, I didn't know where the money was, and I didn't have very many people paying me. So I wasn't doing the greatest.
5: In 2008, Joe had just signed to Amalgam Digital, a new label that promised to get him online buzz while largely ignoring CDs for the growing iTunes market. It was the first of its kind, and you could see how little effort was put into the physical product. For Joe's album, Padded Room, the official artwork accidentally, stupidly misspelled Budden's name with three Ds. But you don't judge an album by its cover. The enthusiasm of his fans was unmatched. Koza Babumba worked in marketing at the famous New York City venue, SOB's, where Joe Budden held the record for fastest sellout. Joe Budden definitely
3: sold out faster, even Drake. We would put the tickets on sale and it'd be completely sold out. We have to add another show. At first, we were just wondering, we are like, this guy doesn't have, like, traditional radio hits on the radio right now. He's not, like, in these spaces that you would expect him to be able to sell these tickets. But the fan base was so loyal because Joe understood early on how to harness the internet in a way that was very unique for an artist who had been at his level.
6: Once I started seeing you could sell out shows from uh just the internet. Like sell out of SOBs. I think when I sold out BB Kings back to back, just off strong internet performance of a mixtape release. Like <laughs> you could you can do it. You can sustain a career.
5: Joe wasn't alone in leaving the big leagues. Amicably or not, so had Joel Ortiz from Brooklyn, Royce the 5'9 from Detroit, and King Crooked from Long Beach, California. I had
3: dealings with one label and they actually asked me if I could dumb my lyrics down and found out that rap songs that have a certain word in them being repeated over 40 to 50 times do well on the radio. And they actually did the market research and actually asked me if I could, you know, go in the studio, dumb the lyrics down and repeat a word, any word I wanted to at least 50 times. They were like, you gotta count it to 50 times, you know what I'm saying? And I was just sitting there looking at him like, I'm not doing that shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying?
5: <laughs> Having no major may have meant no artistic concessions, but it also meant no traditional marketing. That said, getting posted on blogs like Dub CNN and the New Music Cartel would give Crook a place to showcase his thoughts in an unfiltered and unprecedented way. 52 freestyles in a series he called Hip Hop Weekly. I was on the internet
3: doing my thing the Joe had Jump Off Joe Buddy TV. He was doing his thing. I think he had released a 12 minute song or something. Joel was doing some stuff with the blogs, releasing music and giving his opinions on Stuff and Voice, was tearing the internet up with the bar exam. We were picking up a lot of steam online.
5: These were four separate entities, four different histories, four different cities and personalities. They knew of each other, might have been in the same rooms, but had rarely spoken. Unless you count Joe and Royce going back and forth for the year up to September 2008. Royce, thinking they'd got to a good place, reached out to collab, and Joe dissed him. And then everything fell apart. Royce said, quote, Listen to Joe Budden say I fell the fuck off, but he ain't ever fell on. And then Joe, whose new album was delayed, Felt the need to squeeze one more track on and go in on this guy, so it was incredibly surprising when a week later, Joe reached out to Crook, Joel, and yes, Royce, asking them to feature on a new song of his called Slaughterhouse. Astonishingly, they all did.
7: Hey yo, Joey, what you said? Twenty-four, right? Uh-huh. All right cool, I got you. Every time I rhyme, I climb up another notch. Hip hop got my spine smuggled, but I'll be fine, brother. My mind hovers above, boy, you job suckers. Listen, that's word of my mother. You throw a shot at me, I'm throwing a shot back. Yours is on a joint, mine's whistling by your top hat. Yeah, I'm cool with your violin, and I've got back open the max mouth and black out like I do not rant. Joe's one of those people. And I saw embracing screens before anyone. So I'm like, all right, cool. This might be a dope way to get on a joint and also get some light from his engagement with fans on screens. I'll do a dope ass fucking verse. He'll fucking put it up wherever he's going to put it up. And that shit will be fucking something to talk about for a little while in that world. So I didn't really think about the company I was going to keep outside of like, all right, they're all dope. This was like, put your head down time for me. Like just, all right, cool. You left a major.
5: Now you got to rap two times as hard. You got to make them forget about that shit. And maybe that's where the story could have ended. The sixth track on a Joe Budden project picked up by the blogs. But where some signed up for a seven minute bar crawl, others imagined something longer lasting.
3: Nobody expected that shit to happen. The fans created it. The fans forced that shit. The fans were like, fuck that. We like what you guys are doing. Give us more. And it was like, all right, cool. So we need to go back in the lab
5: and do some more shit. The blogs, which valued lyricists, hard beats, and independence, had found their dream project. Commenters were willing the song Slaughterhouse into the group Slaughterhouse. It felt like a restoration record. Like, it was restoring order. Everybody was just like, see,
7: this is what fucking rap's gotta sound like. Whatever energy this is, it just superseded all of us individually. We gotta get on the phone, you know, we gotta talk.
5: Days after the song's release, Royce and Joel visited Joe in New Jersey. Crook called in from California. And Joe being Joe, he filmed the whole meeting and uploaded it to YouTube. They were essentially strangers in a social experiment, putting together this group in real time with all of their fan bases watching the process unfold. They debated whether to diss each other on the same songs. What city would make the best recording environment? and even the likelihood that any of them could pony up $10,000 for studio time in hotels. But in the end, nothing could stop them.
7: And everybody was just in agreeance like, yo, I mean, nothing bad can happen from this, right? And
5: off we go, you know,
4: off we go. It
5: was a whirlwind, an idea a belief, and a 15-song album recorded over the course of six days in late spring 2009. Oh, it
7: was unreal. You stayed in there until you were tired and you couldn't creatively push yourself because it was just mental exhaustion. You guys got 15 songs, but we probably did 30, dog. We probably did four, four in six days. Like, it was just idea after idea. We would go start the day when we all finally got together and we would just listen through the day before. Working with them guys, it pushed me. It definitely pushed me. I had got somewhat comfortable with like, man, niggas can't fuck with Joel Ortiz. Whenever whenever he puts something out, it's like, it's top-notch. It's elite. It's him than the rest, like, in my mind. For the first time in my career, I had felt like, all right, dude, you got to stay on your P's and Q's because the the person over there writing in the corner is coming for your fucking head, man.
5: And he's pretty damn good at it. With the internet hyped... Slaughterhouse would partner with the indie label E1 to release their album in stores that August. Once called A Graveyard by 50 Cent, E1 became home to rappers like Jim Jones, who valued a small shop known for making small bets and giving large payouts. But the skeletal staff undervalued the excitement of Slaughterhouse's blog audience. They pressed up a limited amount of CDs, and the supply fell way short of the demand.
3: They said, oh, shit, we fucked up. And then they called a meeting and we came in there and they were like, yo, you guys aren't going to stay here, are you? You guys aren't going to do your
7: second album there, are you? They did the deal off all of us individually. I feel like they looked at it through this lens. Oh, shit, we get Joel Ortiz. We get Joe Budden. We get Royce Five 5'9". We get Crooked Eye. They didn't look at it like, oh, shit, we get Slaughterhouse. They didn't feel what we felt and they didn't see that momentum. They weren't in tune with it. They were just like, we get four solo artists that kind of came together. That's dope. They share some fan bases. This should do pretty good. They're rooted in the culture, heavy right now, especially on the blog scene, the streets, barbershop talk. They're waiting on this. You guys underestimated
5: what you signed. And it's just like, you guys fucked us. You guys fucked us heavy. Labels, whether big or small, were operating scared. Scared if they got things right. Scared if they got things wrong. Scared if the blogs were the future, and scared if they weren't. Amalgam Digital didn't know how to properly distribute Joe's solo album, and now E1 didn't know how to properly put out his group's album. So Joe Budden could be forgiven if he had flashbacks to his lowest times on Def Jam.
6: I didn't feel helpless. It may have been a time earlier in my career where I felt defeated for stretches but never helpless. I was always pretty confident in my ability and whatever plan I had. Even if it was stubbornness, <laughs> I believed in it.
5: These castaways formed something that stood out, regardless of resumes or results, a rap supergroup. In mere weeks after putting out their album on E1, Slaughterhouse was seen on their biggest stage yet, standing behind Eminem in Interscope's big-budget music video for Forever, a song written by Drake and featuring M, Kanye, and Lil Wayne, unarguably the four biggest names of that year. What could it mean? As Miss Info wrote at the time on her website, there are no coincidences in hip-hop. We need a machine, man, and
3: we need that look. We need a platform.
5: You know, we sitting at the
3: fucking Forever video. Eminem, Drake, Lil Wayne... Hype Williams and all that shit, and it was like, oh shit, Slaughterhouse went from the fucking blogs back to the big leagues again, so to speak.
5: At the top of 2011, Interscope would pay not to be wrong. They signed the blog creation Slaughterhouse to Eminem's Shady Records. And thanks to the blogs, King Crooked, Royce Da 5'9", Joel Ortiz, and yes, Joe Budden, incredibly all found themselves back on a major label. The Big Leagues was recording songs in Honolulu,
1: Hawaii, Paris, France, Sydney, Australia, outside Bath, England, and fuck it, locking off multiple floors at New York City's Tribeca Grand Hotel. The Big Leagues was getting Givenchy creative director Ricardo Tisci to design album artwork. The Big Leagues was a private listening event at the American Museum of Natural History's Rose Center for Earth and Space, simulating a trip light years away. When Jay-Z and Kanye West, the two biggest artists on this planet, got together and wanted to promote the big single off their joint album, they didn't go to the blogs to make a movie. They went to Funkmaster Flex.
3: Everybody's
8: tuned in. The whole entire world is tuned in. And not only that, other DJs across the world are tuned in. This was Jay and Kanye, the first record off of, you
1: know, Watch the Throne. The rollout was to give it the flex, let him go bad, let him drop bombs on it, and go in. Young Sav, who worked at Def Jam's promo department, wrote Shotgun with Sean Pecos Costner, the executive whose role was not unlike The Wolf from Pulp Fiction. First stop... Tribeca Grand to pick up the CD with Jay and Kanye's song, and then on to Hot 97 to hand deliver it to Flex.
8: So he was like, all right, cool. Flex pull up, he parks his car in front of the station, he puts his hand through the window, (laughs) uh, because me and Peck are still sitting in the car, takes the uh, CD, and I think he says something like, yo, watch this. And I'm
4: like, nah, this shit about to get crazy.
1: Funk Flex. The most popular and infamous hip hop DJ in radio history took to the Hot 97 airways on the evening of July 20th, 2011, and introduced Watch the Throne, Jay and Kanye's collaborative project, to the world. He played their three minute song Otis, which sampled Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness, for the better part of a half hour straight. No commercials. Flex dropped bomb sound effects, he growled, he'd stop the record and wind it back again and again. He yelled over music, telling new rappers to, quote, reassess your whole album and careers. And instructing New York City drivers to go into a convenience store and, quote, put your hand in the cash register for no reason. Their money is your money as of right now.
7: New York City. Take this record serious right here in New York. This is back and forth action at its best. Okay? It makes It's FlexWeTrust.com, if you're trying to get to this, you see me out here. One million unique visitors a month. That's how I get down. My digital game is serious.
1: Flex created a moment in time live over the airwaves. And since he had the world's attention, Flex not only plugged his own site as the only place to listen to Otis early, he took time to throw multiple shots at the New Music Cartel. low key was tuned in.
3: I listened to that shit. It was a fucking incredible moment. Who am I not to listen to one of the biggest moments in hip-hop history, obviously on one of the biggest shows in hip-hop? That's supposed to happen. That's supposed to be a thing, but it just goes to show how big of an influence we are. Why are you still talking about us? Why are you worried about us on the night that you have a huge, huge record to debut from two of the biggest artists in the game, and we're still on your mind? If that's not influence, I don't know what is.
1: Marissa Mendez, working for InflexWeTrust.com, was in the building at Hot 97 that night. She knew that part of Flex's agreement to premiere the record on the air was that his blog would post it at the same time.
9: The energy was so fucking nuts and crazy. And, you know, we we're putting it on the site and stuff. The traffic was like out of fucking control on the website that night. It was just cool. Everything that he did was an extension of the site. Everything he did was for the site. And so that became primary, whereas radio almost became secondary and just as a promotional tool for the site. So that's what he saw his radio show then becoming like, it's just a way to throw back to the site. So any news story he would talk about, anything going on, it would be go check out more on we Trust. and any song he premiere, go listen on InflexiTrust. So it, was, it literally became blog first, radio second. And it's just a promotional tool for the website and not the other way around.
1: The blogs could discover talent. The blogs could attract the right ears. But what the blogs could not do was independently break all the way through to the
5: mainstream. Mickey Facts had come a long way since the days of not getting his emails returned by SK. At
4: least you get some sort of finality when you hear the word no. Nope. But to be ignored at that time, it was demoralizing a little bit because I knew I was talented, but I had to come to the realization that it was probably hundreds of thousands of people emailing SK to get on Now nah Right.
5: Mickey would go on to be a Now nah Right regular. He would become the face of the blogs. He would be on the big XXL Freshman cover, and he would sign to Battery Records, the independent acting arm of the super label Jive. Mickey had no reason to think he'd ever be ignored again. But even though Battery signed a blog rapper who could expand what hip-hop was, who was understood in both New York and Japan, Jive executives wanted something more familiar. Jeff Sledge was Mickey's A&R,
4: mickey's from the Bronx. he was a battle rapper by trade they thought it was gonna be a real straight up hip-hop album that also would be a lot less to market and i think we were just so far ahead of the curve musically that jive didn't know what to do our first single was paradise which was a boom back record with a little edge i got the homies in your town like what up, what up the
6: ladies come around like what up bro even haters that he fell say what up
4: One of 10 of those and we wanted to do some other shit so we could never come to a meeting of the music
5: mickey used all of his resources to fit in he premiered two videos on 106 and park toured with big sean collaborated with fat joe bun b and marcia ambrosius he even made a pop friendly joint with bob if that one did well he was hoping to record with label mate justin timberlake But Jeff Sledge's bosses never got it.
4: We all became very frustrated because we were telling them, look, these records can go. You know, it's not going to be the same approach as you probably thought it was going to be. But if we put money and push behind these records, he'll be a way bigger artist than we can imagine. And we can never meet in the middle. And then Jive ended up shuddering in 2011. And so that kind of deaded everything because the label was gone. Barry Weiss got an offer at Def Jam to run the label after L.A. Reed left and being that Battery and
3: Jive was Barry Weiss's thing, the whole label kind of folded so everybody that was on my team with the exception of my product manager Toya Summers was fired let go basically so Jeff Sledge was let go my publicist at the time was let go my radio guys were let go I had a whole brand new team It was tough. Dealing with people who didn't sign you, so you're basically
5: leftovers, and technically a new artist. In the middle of a corporate restructuring, Mickey's contract was transferred over to RCA Records, where he was put on the shelf. Ultimately, the only thing worse than being labeled a blog rapper was being labeled a label rapper. Mickey Facts and RCA came to a mutual decision to part ways.
1: It really wasn't that crazy that a rapper from Pittsburgh had the internet going nuts in 2011. Black and Yellow, the lead single off Wiz Khalifa's major label debut album, was all over the radio, had hit number one on the Billboard charts, was the Steelers' anthem as they marched to Super Bowl 45, and everyone and their mother made their own remix to it. But a second Steel City spitter with gigantic momentum, one barely out of high school, obsessed with New York City boom bap, and, oh yeah, was white? Sounded like a kid's story. And that's just what Mac Miller was. Founder and president of Rostrum Records, Benji Grinberg.
8: I think that the beauty of who Mac was, and continued to be, really, was this extremely relatable Human being. When we went to his first show, his very, 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 very first show, what was striking was that the kids that were there to see him, um, and it was again, only like, you know, maybe 30 kids there, something like that, were like him. And I think that that's ultimately what people related to was that Mac was rapping about very relatable things, school, cutting class, you know. And I'm mentioning this because as amazing as that was, when you're ahead of it when you're thinking about signing this artist and you're used to kind of looking for this person have that big star quality and are people going to want to be him and this that and the other. It was like this whole other way of looking at it It was like, no, people don't want to be him. People are him. We're not pushing him as Mac is this unattainable human being that girls want to be with and guys want, you know, like all that cliched bullshit. Yo, people see themselves in Mac. And that is the breakthrough.
1: Benji also grew up in Pittsburgh. After a spell in New York working as L.A. Reed's assistant at Arista Records, Benji moved back home, established his independent record company that he called Rostrum, and linked with a young Wiz Khalifa. Together, they pushed hazy and melodic projects through the blogs, relentlessly toward the country, and reshaped the perception of a popular rapper. Wiz had unlimited tattoos, a striking blonde stripe in his hair, and made out with new girlfriend Amber Rose in front of countless cameras. Benji and then-vice president of Rostrum, Artie Pitt, were working with a rock star. Mac was a class behind Wiz, behind Wale, behind Sky Zoo and Ture, so his first aims were not unlike theirs get on by appealing to the true gatekeepers, the blogs. But his early music didn't garner many posts. Not even his blatant kiss-up song called Blog Is Hot, which was entirely made up of shouting out the names of the biggest websites. At the end of the track, he begged for bloggers to post his shit. It did not work. As he wound down the promotion for his third project, The High Life, Mac and his friends slash managers Will Coulson and Quentin Cuff knew the songs were getting better but also understood the limits to their small operation Mac's close friend Ian Rexaro Wolfson
10: I remember having a conversation with Mac where he was just like really excited because he had been at ID Labs and like Benji or Artie had stopped by and he just he felt like it wasn't even a meeting it was just like a hangout but like he felt like it went really well I feel like the goal was to get signed to Rostrum. And like everything that we were doing on that early point was to like impress Artie and Benji enough to like be noticed and to like make that possible. It's weird. It's like I don't ever remember hearing a conversation about a major label because it was always just about the Rostrum path.
1: This is Quentin Cuff, Max Confidant and day to day manager.
9: Once you go up there, you realize why an R.D. Pit can connect with all these people because he's able to just ask them, like, hey, you want to go to lunch? And like, can I send you some music? And I'm already doing shit with Wiz. So we had the leverage through him doing so much shit with Wiz that people's ears were open to hearing new shit from Pittsburgh, luckily. And luckily, instead of going one for two and swinging missing with the second one, Mac was a super solid progression, if not evolution, of what Wiz was doing.
1: Breaking one artist a miracle breaking two a pattern an already knew one when he saw it
11: first thing I said to his mom when I met his mom was that he was going to be one of the biggest artists in the world
1: hip hop is a black art form when you're white and looking to participate in culture there's traditionally two ways to go about things one pay tribute to those who sacrificed before you and contribute with your honest truth Or two, cheekily use rap as a stepping stone to something else. Mac Miller was unquestionably the former. On an early trip to D&D Studios to visit with legendary producer DJ Premier, he stepped inside the vocal booth so he could silently meditate in the same space Biggie Smalls used decades before. Mac studied the late Big L. He rapped over Lord Finesse Beats in Tribute. He collaborated with the underground hero and Brooklyn MC, Sean Price. He was popular without selling out. He was a model of what the blogs had been championing, and should have been their darling, if only
5: the blogs weren't already late. Social media's latest sweetheart was Twitter a bare-bones escalator down your computer screen, consisting solely of screen names and 140-character-limit thoughts. Life went from 20 posts a day to thousands. This is Peter Rosenberg.
2: Twitter. People don't need to read a blog. They can read a link. All a blog is is a fucking list of tweets. Hey, check out the new video from so-and-so. 100 characters video. Boom. That's Twitter.
5: Here's Dallas Penn.
2: Microblogging meant that people got to the payoff really quick. They didn't need all your history, all your diatribe. They don't need all that shit. They just need the hyperlink
3: and an emoji.
5: What made Twitter special was its speed and influence. Inside jokes became international conversations. TV ratings shot up when Twitter users decided to watch a program together and provide live commentary. Issues that previously lived under the radar were forced to be addressed in stark dialogue. And just like pop culture since the middle of the 20th century, black creativity and intellect led the way. Twitter's very early adopters were majority black, at roughly double the proportion of the African-American population at that time. Though redundant, the subsect that drove the platform would colloquially be referred to as Black Twitter. Brandon Jinx Jenkins.
3: And I think where the blogs focus mostly on the music, which is the quickest indicator of where culture's headed, Twitter celebrated the whole orbiting culture, which is Black culture. It celebrated the way in which we talk. It celebrated the events we were going to. It found a way to crystallize swag surfing that was happening in real time in places, but that had no place on a blog, really.
5: now, right. Two Dope Boys, Fresh Alina, the YBF, and many other siloed off-sites had their own communities but Twitter allowed everyone to intermingle. Black Twitter created magic, dominating the 10 trending topics and sparking hashtags like you know you ace hood. It was a supersized chat room. Longtime commenter, Ray Rodriguez.
12: I swear that a lot of the Twitter slang of that moment came from Nara, came from those rap blogs. And I don't know how we'd be able to quantify that, but I strongly feel that way because a lot of the stuff that we were saying insulated in the blogs. I really do think that in the days of 2006, 7, even before Twitter like really blew up in 8, 9, 10, that we started a lot of those kind of things.
5: The early days of Twitter were, to put it in a word, chaotic. Fun, but chaotic. Especially late at night, when whatever rules there were were thrown out the window. Relationships broke up. Parody accounts popped up. Fights started online and later ended up in Temecula. It was where Rihanna and Sierra could throw shots at each other, and Fabulous was there to pop popcorn. Jokes and facts went to war every single day, and jokes went out every single time. This is Andreas Hale.
0: Yes, <laughs> like, if you listen to the not-right comments, and you look at how ignorant some of them things were, and you look at how dissolved this, this full-blown arguments about something that has nothing to do with the original content, that's Black Twitter. Black Twitter just becomes this highway of misinformation, hotepism, banter, unsubstantiated claims. Like, that's all the same thing. It's all the same thing, but it creates a community.
5: And in its finest hours, Twitter could promote deserving creators from distant cities and successfully bring celebrities and civilians together, things the blogs were once known for. D. Bills knew his days spent commenting on Nah Right were numbered.
9: When I hopped on Twitter and was having actual conversation and dialogue with Wiz Khalifa,
6: I'm like, oh, this shit is over. This is it, because you can't stop real time. You can't beat real time.
3: Here's Wiz. Yeah, man, the connection was really dope when Twitter first started. It was much easier to get things trending that were cool to you, but they could spread around the world. That's really when my fan base strengthened is when Twitter became involved and brought it all together and it created a world that I've never seen be done on any other social media platform.
5: Mac found his people on Twitter. He added Wale, Currency, Big Sean, Just Blaze, Lil B the Bass God, Styles P, cultivating his hip-hop relationships. He introduced his fan base to his own sense of humor with tweets like, I love you, Kettlecorn, but why do you insist on taking shelter in my teeth? When he needed extras for his videos or help finding weed, he'd ask Twitter. In just over a year, he gained 5,000 followers. And instead of pandering to the blogs, he'd use Twitter to push his new project, Kids. Kicking Incredibly Dope Shit, with a link that took you to the online mixtape hub, datpiff.com. DatPiff was your one-stop shop for mixtapes, a central location
1: where artists' latest projects could live and be downloaded. While it lacked the curation and taste of the blogs, there was a convenience to their streaming technology. The 2007 raid on Drama and Canon Studio may have brought an end to the physical promo era, but with more and more artists using free music as a marketing tool, mixtapes would evolve in the digital space. Here's DJ Drama.
6: I watched the rise of live mixtapes and Dat Piff and artists of a whole new generation come where they didn't even use DJs. and I always look at it like a phoenix arose because if we want to really put it in perspective, like mixtapes actually became bigger than they ever were.
1: Kids became an instant hit on Dat Piff, earning Mac a spot in the platinum section alongside Lil Wayne, Rick Ross, Meek Mill and Wiz and setting off a sold out club tour. But just as important as the music, were the videos shot by Rex Arrow. Here's Quentin Cuff.
9: He was, I would say, 50% of the reason why Max career launched the way that it did, because we had these visuals that people were just like, damn, bro. This is the music video shit that Puppy and all these dudes have been doing, but this is a kind of suburban, more laid-back, stoner version of it, you know? And they're not trying to be too funny and they're not trying to be too serious.
1: Each music video Mac uploaded to YouTube, Nike's On My Feet, Kool-Aid and Frozen Pizza, the upbeat frat house classic Knock Knock, did mega numbers, which upped his popularity and also the bottom line.
9: he started seeing how viral Live Free and... A- few Other videos did, and how active the comments were, and how people were acting. And then after that, the whole of Mac's career money for a video. I feel like Ian will tell you that it was problems at certain times, but they were allowed to do whatever not major label million dollar budgets, but 10K, 20K like it was nothing because it was like, bro, we're gonna make that back in a few months on YouTube.
1: For Ian, the waters sure felt smooth for a group of friends making waves, even on the smaller shoots.
10: Don't mind if I do felt like the culmination of everything we had done to that point. And I just remember being on the boat with Jimmy and Q and Tree J and Malcolm. And it just felt like anything from here on out was possible because like we had arrived at this point where it felt like we were just like striking gold every time we rolled the camera.
1: Mac was on the Ustream video platform when he announced his next project, Best Day Ever with thousands tuned in live. His social numbers kept picking up, and he knew how to juice them. To incentivize people to follow him on Twitter, he'd release a new song for every 100,000 followers he earned. He called it the road to a million fans. The work paid off. Best Day Ever was streamed over a million times on DatPiff, and the dominoes kept tipping. He was named a double XL freshman, and went on Twitter saying to his 169,000 followers, quote, if anybody in Ithaca has a copy of Double XL, I will get you high. He and Rostrum were in a honeymoon phase, and Wiz invited him on his green carpet tour that spring.
11: And Mac, like, crushed it every night, all those shows in front of thousands and thousands of people, and I think Mac was more ready than people thought.
1: Benji and the Rostrum team, with the wind at their backs, Dared to dream big dreams. They began to design the rollout for Mac Miller's debut album. As we were leading
8: into Blue Slide Park, you know, went from this mixtape realm to real music infrastructure slash publications slash whatever, like came into the picture because they saw what was happening. We were building this incredible story. What our job was was to continue feeding it. Mac had a great team around him, whether it was and you know, on the videos already helping, pushing the blog and all the publication stuff and,
1: and helping on the social side. We were all wearing 10 different hats and just fucking grinding it. There were no significant radio budgets. The highest-ranking song of his leading up to the album, Frick Park Market, only got as high as number 60 on Billboard. The album's track listing didn't include a single feature. So Mac extended himself to his audience. He got fans excited on Twitter... Want the title track released? Let's get 25,000 pre-orders. 50,000 and he'd donate $50,000 to charity. If they hit 100,000 pre-orders, shit. Mac promised they'd drop the album early.
11: His digital following and his internet following was so big that I believe the album went to number two or number three on just the pre-order. So just from that alone, you can tell how much the internet did for him. I think we did 30,000 or something in the first day or two. That was September 2011, two months before the album came out. And his videos would often get, you know, a million hits in a day or two. And he was touring and he was a nice groundswell of success because a lot of times an artist like Mac, when he came out in 2010, would be microwaved and pushed into a situation where he needed to sell out arenas on his own or he needed to sell out this certain capacity.
1: The aim was to amplify his authenticity, rally his fans to support an independent release, and shock the world. Blue Slide Park would be a test of whether the internet's excitement was anything close to real. In November of 2011, Blue Slide Park would check in at the very top of the Billboard charts. Mac Miller would be the first solo artist to ever independently debut at number 1. You know, for for yourself, what did, you know, like it's one thing to say let's get a number 1 album but like for you, you know, you grow up in Pittsburgh. You start a label that is independent, you know, off, you know, an island off of the coast of the, of the music business, like you said. Like, this is your number one and it comes in partnership with a kid who comes from your hometown. What did it mean to you? Um, You know what? Strangely, I'm getting emotional right now.
8: Give me one second.
1: Take your time.
8: Man, this came out of nowhere. Um, and everything, um, and then everything, um, I, I, I can tell you that,
1: sorry, guys. That's right.
8: Sometimes when you're in the middle of something like that, <clears throat> you don't even realize exactly what's happening. Um, you know, and it's not until years later that you can look back at something and fully appreciate it because in that moment, you want to stop and celebrate. And at the same time, you're dealing with lots of other things. I'm juggling Mac and Wiz at the same time, sort of at the peak of what's going on with them. And there's a lot going on. You're dealing with drug issues. And, and so it's not like we took, you know, it's not like we went away for 10 days and celebrated and like all took a break, you know what I mean? And so sometimes when really special things happen, or big milestones in your professional career, and sometimes even in your personal life, you can't fully appreciate it until later when you say, holy fuck, independent of any major infrastructure, we had our own independent, you know, number one. And and that means a lot to me. And and obviously now with Mac not being here, a whole other set of emotions, you know.
5: David Benjamin, the senior vice president of anti-piracy for Universal Music Group, had had enough. He worked with the RIAA and ICE in seizing the assets of websites that they determined to be bootleggers, including OnSmash and DeJazz1. He influenced Congress and Interpol to craft policy, often giving speeches linking operators of these music sites to organized crime. And he'd sent countless cease and desist orders across the internet. Threatening bloggers every time a Universal Music Group song appeared on their websites. Mike Masnick of TechDirt.com
0: You know, it's an easy story, and it makes sense. Hey, you know, we're the record labels, and we are huge and flashy, and, and lots of people know who we are, and all of our artists, and blah, 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 and we sell this many CDs, and suddenly we're selling less CDs. Clearly... The Internet is evil, and there's a problem. And you can draw that line, but that avoids all of the nuances and all of the details and the fact that, like, the Internet changed the game in all sorts of ways and allowed new artists to come up without having to go through the gatekeeper and without having to get the permission of a Universal, you know, or an EMI or whoever. They didn't like that part either. And so it became really easy for the record labels to blame the Internet for the fact that they were suddenly facing competition and no longer had full control over the gates you know, what's incredible is you can go back over a century and find different versions of that exact same narrative over and over and over again.
5: The genie was out of the bottle and David Benjamin was about to suffocate it. Group M, one of the world's largest media planning and buying operations, was responsible for spending billions a year on online advertisements on behalf of its global clients, including Ford, Unilever, AT&T and IBM. Ads from Group M appeared on websites like nowright.com. Money generated from advertising allowed SK to operate his business and live his life. On behalf of Universal Music Group, David Benjamin submitted to Group M a list of websites he determined had pirated content. Those sites were put on a blacklist. No more Group M ads. That blacklist contained over 2,000 domains, including right and every blog in the new music cartel, 50 Cent's website, is 50com Vibe.com, and even the mega site that saw itself as competing with ESPN, Complex.com. Only five years earlier, Complex's website was strictly a placeholder for Mark Echo's failing company. Here's then-CEO Rich Antonello.
12: At the end of 06, going into 07, I don't know if you guys remember this, but that was kind of right when print uh, magazines in general were getting pounded. Like it was the onset of the downside of that. Plus, streetwear was having a little bit of a reset. So our working capital was being put in by Echo Unlimited, the larger scale company that owned our LLC at the time. They were having some financial
5: issues. CIT Bank had pulled Echo's line of credit and demanded Complex cut a quarter of their staff. Rich loved his team, both as humans and creators. Being their leader, he refused to let anyone go before him. He convinced the executive ranks to join him in taking a pay cut and take a leap of faith in reimagining the company as digital first.
12: I was married and I had a small baby. I had a second on the way. And both my parents were sick and in the hospital at the same time. I didn't have a whole lot of money in the bank. It was a huge hit and it was very scary.
5: To be a good entrepreneur, Rich Felt, yet to be a good gambler. And luckily, he had been heavily involved in college. Maybe not exactly running his own book, but he was a hustler and running a business he was happy to discover was a lot like playing craps.
12: You're oscillating between the bets that you're making on an individual role, that you're managing micro versus macro environment. You're not always the shooter. Somebody else is at different times. You can bet for or against the shooter. And there is no question, if you fundamentally understand the odds in the house and you understand how micro and macro oscillate against one another, the odds of you being a successful entrepreneur will significantly increase.
5: Complex wouldn't be some giant portal like AOL or Yahoo. Nor would they be just any vertical ad network. They'd have to be deliberate.
12: We were like, all right, we have all of these sites that are everybody's trying to drive towards scale at the time, right? How many uniques I can have and how many page views. Or they were gigantic, kind of ubiquitous portals. So I was like, all right, this doesn't make any sense to me because if we are the purveyors of culture, you have to be rooted in authenticity and credibility. And now look, you have to have a big enough audience to make sense. But our viewpoint was instead of going out and trying to get very big sites to walk in and make advertising conversations right, let's put the consumer first and go get best-in-class websites that are the best hip-hop site, Nah Right. The best sneaker site was Nice Kicks. The best style slash culture site was, remember, Slam X Hype? And then we were also pop culture, which was the Bastardly at that point, which was kind of like an edgier, more male-oriented Perez Hilton. So if you think about each of those verticals, it was like sneakers, hip hop, style, and then like pop culture. And of course, each of those were spokes on a wheel and the hub of everything, the umbrella and the hub, each of those verticals fed into sections in Complex.com, which were also sections in the magazine of Complex. I mean, it sounds duh now, but nobody was building anything that way. And by the way, if we were just the magazine at that time, we would have been dead.
5: The formation and success of the Complex Media Network allowed for investors to trust in Rich's vision. And in 2009, Complex received a $12.8 million venture capital infusion.
12: It's gonna sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but at that time, dude, the minute that check cleared, it turned around and wrote a whole bunch of checks. That was just enough for working capital. I was not doing some celebratory thing of how much money I just raised. That was like just to get us over the hump and allow us to sustain and continue to run the business because we had a lot of momentum on the business itself. But you know, the ad game, and that was 99% of our revenues at the time. It's not a good cash flow business. It's very cash intensive. So it was more of a relief to do that and be able to now turn around and not worry about every two weeks people's checks clearing. That's how close it
1: was. By 2011, the company was fucking soaring. The spokes on the wheel were generating massive amounts of page views. O.J. Lima was the company's director of content operations. We were laughing at like
2: Rolling Stone, or like, what a joke these guys are over here. Like, they can't do shit. They can't get it together.
3: We're totally murdering them. GQ, haha, ha, that's a GQ. Yeah, you guys think you know fashion, but you don't know fashion. We have more people looking for us for this advice than you do. They weren't out of business, but they
2: were fundamentally out of business. We had debted all of them. You got to remember, they were
12: nowhere. They didn't even have their own website at the time. Condé Nast used to make all of their individual brands. This is how forward-thinking Condé Nast was. Ha ha. They used to make all their men's fashion magazines under one umbrella. It was men.style.com. That's how smart they were about the internet.
1: At the hub of the wheel, Complex.com had turned into a colossus, covering an endless amount of verticals. Clickbaity slideshows were their own industry. The 100 best albums of the decade, the 50 best Jordan 3s, 25 best comic books of the year, 50 top Asian porn stars of all time, 14 best stanky leg videos, 50 greatest architectural achievements of the modern world. If Symphony Hall was ranked the number 42 greatest achievement, people would spend all day arguing about it on Twitter. And we would know We were paid to write lists just like those. In 2011 alone, Complex.com did 482 million page views from 25 million unique visitors. And there was an internal order not to share any of the traffic. Do not link out to Mr. X, or Two Dope Boys, or Fake Shore Drive. Do not link out to NowWrite.com. solidify Complex as the star incoming calls from potential buyers were happening around the clock so the inclusion of Complex.com on the Group M blacklist could not have come at a worse time Noah Callahan Bever then Complex's editor-in-chief tweeted his displeasure vowing to keep any universal artists from his popular site he deleted that tweet soon after Rich and OJ made it their business to get Complex.com off the blacklist. Uh, Complex.com alongside so many of the blogs in the media network were named on the Group M blacklist, which was compiled in coordination with David Benjamin at at UMG. Um, Oh, yeah. And, you know, his job is to fight piracy online, so so his his viewpoint is hey, these guys are... I had
12: a great relationship with David.
1: Well, it must have been as surprising to you then as it was to Noah when when Complex was put on that list, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. By the way,
12: I, we developed the relationship after that. I didn't have one going into that with
1: David. Yeah,
12: I didn't know who he was at that
1: time. In short order, they established an easy and effective friendship with David Benjamin, where not unlike how Hoff did things at On Smash, there was an open dialogue.
12: Just as an FYI, it wasn't as big of a problem because the minute I got on the phone with David, once she got past all the hemming and hawing, it was like, we want to work with you guys. Our PR teams love you guys. Our artists love you guys. We just can't have you putting up stuff before it's cleared. And we got a problem. So let's figure out how to work through it. And David and I had a thing where we're like, hey, by the way, like, just call me before you send a cease and desist. We will put a filter on everything. And if things sneak through, please just call me. We will fix it as soon as we possibly can, if not immediately. And we got over that pretty quickly, by the way. That was not this seminal moment or anything like that. I think it meant more to a lot of the individual blogs And that whole new music cartel that were living and dying by that. I mean, if you and I'm not saying this was directly tied, but like, you know, look at what the government did to Hoff. That to me was much more seminal than I. And to be honest with you, when you brought it up, I remember it now, of course, but that wouldn't even make my top 50 list of like inflection points
1: for complex. It was back to business. The following year, they'd have big campaigns with Ford, AT&T, and Unilever. But for everybody else?
5: In even, like, thinking about this now, you've had this long-standing relationship with a number of the NMC guys. And then is there any obligation from, like, Complex to try and get them off the blacklist? And I, I, I know that you're going to say no, but, like— <laughs>
12: That's, that was a big part of it. When I was representing that, that wasn't just Complex trying to have that conversation. That was the entire network.
5: But they were never taken off the blacklist.
12: Is that true?
1: When Complex was on its last legs in 2006, nah right, with its organic success and popularity, was there to lend a hand. In promoting a burgeoning ad network to media planners in 2007... Nowright lent Complex its cool and its audience. But when now Wright needed help the most in 2011, with monetary opportunities being kept away, the company that sold him on a beneficial partnership for both sides did not hold up their end of the bargain with SK
6: uh yeah as far as i know i was never removed from that group
1: m blacklist this is mike Maznick saying that no group m advertisers would advertise on your site you're probably talking about a
0: 50 percent cut in your advertising revenue because um, you're sort of going to weaker and, and and less important advertisers especially it might even be more than that when you think about it for the music sites because i bet you that a lot of the sort of valuable ad inventory, as they call it, for a music blog, would be from major brands that are likely to be through Group M. So it would be a major hit on revenue
1: to be on that blacklist. Industries that laughed the blogs, ignored the blogs, feared the blogs, got close to the blogs, and robbed the blogs had finally gotten their wish. They removed every last Lifeline and left the blogs for dead. The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Venner. Executive produced for It's the Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlos. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written researched and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Tim Hotep Aku. Fact checked by Brandon Calendar. This is the blog era.